Welcome back to Rashcast for episode 52. I'm Nachi Gupta. And I'm Mega Rajpal. With the in-training exam around the corner, we're back with a new episode after a long break. But don't forget that you can always go back and listen to old episodes. We've covered over 300 questions. We'll also have a little update at the end of the episode, but for now, let's jump right into some new questions. Your first patient is a 64-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, migraines, and polymyalgia rheumatica. She presents with a right-sided headache that has been progressively worsening over the past three days, and this feels different from her prior migraines. The pain worsens with eating and when she brushes her hair. Her review of systems is positive for fatigue and partial vision loss in the right eye. In the ED, she's febrile to 38 degrees Celsius, and her exam demonstrates tenderness to palpation over the right temple. Visual acuity is 2040 on the left and 2080 on the right. What's the most appropriate next step in the patient's management? Is it A, IV methylprednisolone, B, obtain ESR and CRP to confirm diagnosis, C, obtain temporal artery biopsy, or D, oral prednisone? So they're clearly describing temporal arteritis, aka giant cell arteritis here, and are testing you on the diagnosis and treatment. The most appropriate next step in this patient with vision loss is answer choice A, administering IV methylprednisolone. But let's quickly go over the other answer choices. Answer choice B, obtaining ESR and CRP values to confirm the diagnosis, is something that should happen, but the patient has vision loss, so immediate treatment is the next best step. Also, a normal ESR and CRP don't rule out the diagnosis. Answer choice C, obtaining a temporal artery biopsy, is also something that should be considered as part of this patient's management plan, but we definitely don't want to wait for biopsy results to start treating here. Delaying treatment can lead to irreversible vision loss. Answer choice D, giving the patient oral prednisone, is an option for a patient without signs of vision loss. And as a brief review of giant cell arteritis, this is the most common vasculitis in the U.S. and it affects women more than men. It usually presents in the elderly and almost never before the age of 50. Patients present with low-grade fever, weight loss, fatigue, headache, scalp tenderness, vision loss, and jaw claudication. Jaw claudication is the clinical feature that is most likely associated with a positive temporal artery biopsy. Vision loss is the most concerning clinical feature in these patients, and the onset is abrupt. Emergent treatment is always warranted. Treatment, as Mega mentioned, is with IV methylprednisolone, and that's given for the first three days, and then it's followed with oral prednisone. If your patient is unable to take glucocorticoids, then tocilizumab or methotrexate are other options for treatment. As you're admitting this patient for IV steroids and patting yourself on the back, the nurse tells you about an uncomfortable-appearing 42-year-old man who presents with lower back pain that started acutely while lifting a couch. The pain is radiating to the right posterolateral calf. He denies any bowel or bladder incontinence. On examination, he has decreased plantar flexion at the right ankle and numbness of the right lateral foot. Disc herniation at which level is most likely responsible for his findings? Is it A, L2, L3? B, L3, L4, C, L4, L5, or D, L5, S1. So I know that most disc herniations occur posterior laterally and impinge the next lower nerve root as it crosses the disc on its path to the neural foramen. Our patient has decreased plantar flexion and numbness of the lateral foot, all signs pointing to an S1 radiculopathy. So the correct answer here is choice D, L5, S1. Other signs of an S1 radiculopathy are decreased sensation along the posterolateral calf and decreased Achilles reflex. A positive straight leg raise test has a sensitivity of over 90% for sciatica, but a low specificity. A positive cross straight leg test, which is pain in the lower back radiating down the affected leg when the contralateral leg is raised, 
actually has a high specificity for diagnosing sciatica. Let's go over the other answer choices and their respective distributions. Choice A, L2-L3 herniation, will cause decreased sensation of the medial thigh and weakness of hip flexion. Choice B, L3-L4 herniation, results in decreased sensation of the medial foot and weakness of knee extension. Decreased sensation between the first and second toe and weakness of ankle dorsiflexion can be seen with choice C, L4-L5 disc herniation. Certainly worth committing these distributions to memory if you haven't already. Moving on, which of the following is most likely to be seen in hepatorenal syndrome? Is it A, arteriolar congestion, B, histologically normal kidneys, C, necrosis of the renal tubules, or D, segmental sclerosis of the renal glomeruli? Hepatorenal syndrome is a cause of acute kidney injury in patients with acute or chronic liver disease. I feel like patients with hepatorenal syndrome probably have histologically normal kidneys, choice B, but I'm not certain I know why the other answer choices are incorrect. Let's discuss the other answer choices and delve further into hepatorenal syndrome. Choice A, arteriolar congestion, is incorrect because in hepatorenal syndrome, the renal arterioles are constricted rather than dilated and congested. Renal arteriolar dilation and congestion is actually associated with CHF or other states of decreased forward flow. Choice C, necrosis of the renal tubules. Here they're describing ATN or acute tubular necrosis. ATN can be precipitated by exposure to renal toxins or severe ischemia causing intrarenal failure. And choice D, segmental sclerosis of the renal glomeruli. Here they're just describing FSGS or focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, which is another cause of intrarenal kidney failure. And as a refresher, hepatorenal syndrome occurs secondary to splanchnic arterial vasodilation mediated by nitric oxide and prostaglandins in response to portal hypertension. This leads to activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway, causing systemic vasoconstriction that is most prominent in the kidneys. This causes a decline in renal perfusion and decreased GFR, but histologically, the kidneys are not affected and can function normally if the liver function improves. Hepatorenal syndrome is usually precipitated by an acute insult such as SBP or GI bleeding. It presents with increased serum creatinine with minimal proteinuria and low sodium excretion in the setting of acute or chronic liver disease. Oliguria is also typically present. This is also a diagnosis of exclusion. Other causes of renal injury should be excluded before settling on hepatorenal syndrome. Treatment for hepatorenal syndrome is focused on improvement of liver function. Definitive treatment, however, would be liver transplant. As you're admitting your patient with hepatorenal syndrome, you pick up a quick hand pain. It's a 27-year-old man who accidentally injected his left index finger with a grease gun while at work. On physical exam, the digit is swollen with a pinhole wound. The remainder of the hand exam is unremarkable. Which of the following will best determine the amount of tissue damage a substance will cause? Is it A, chemical properties of the substance, B, pressure of the injection, C, temperature of the substance injected, or D, volume of the substance injected? Well, this isn't a quick hand pain. This patient is exhibiting signs and symptoms of high-pressure injection injury. Choice A, the chemical properties of the substance injected are the primary determinant of the damage caused. Air and clean water have a benign course, while paint solvents cause the most severe inflammation. The initial external exam may look deceptively reassuring. However, there's typically delayed pain, distension and swelling of the digit, and ultimately vascular involvement resulting in digital ischemia as inflammation progresses. Tracking along tendon sheets allows the inflammation to progress more proximally on the flexor surface of the hand, which may result in flexor tenosynovitis. High-pressure injection injuries are a true surgical emergency. The management of these injuries is by immediate surgical debridement and exploration by a hand surgeon. While in the ED, tetanus prophylaxis should be updated, analgesia provided, and IV antibiotics should be started. 
The other answer choices, B, pressure of the injection, C, temperature of the injectant, and D, volume of the injectant, are all important in determining the extent of damage. But the chemical properties of the injectant are the primary determinant of the amount of tissue destruction that occurs. While on this topic, do you remember Knievel's criteria for flexor tenosynovitis? Definitely. There are four criteria to remember here. One, the finger is typically held in slight flexion. Two, there is fusiform swelling of the digit. Three, there is tenderness along the flexor tendon sheath. And four, there is pain with passive extension of the digit. I actually just saw one of these the other day. Always good to clinically correlate your studying with patient exams. Agreed. Let's head over to the pediatric ED for the next one. A five-year-old girl presents with a rash that started on her face and spread to her neck, axilla, and groin. Her mom states that she had an upper respiratory infection one week ago. On exam, the patient's rash is tender with a positive Nikolsky sign. Which of the following statements regarding the diagnosis of this patient's condition is correct? Is it A, deep layers of the dermis are involved? B, it often leaves the patient disfigured from scarring? C, mucous membrane involvement is common? Or D, the disease is caused by an exotoxin-producing bacteria? The first step to this question is identifying that they're describing staph's called it skin syndrome here. This is caused by answer choice D, exotoxin-producing bacteria. It is actually a severe form of bullous impetigo that is seen in children less than 5 years of age and often follows a URI. Rash associated with this syndrome starts on the face, with perioral being classic, neck, axilla, and groin, and then spreads and becomes exfoliative, followed by development of flaccid bullet and skin discomation. These rashes are tender to touch, and you'll see a positive Nikolsky sign, as in this girl. Treatment is supportive with anti-staph antibiotics like nafcillin or oxacillin. Of course, if initial treatment fails or there's a high prevalence of MRSA, you probably want to consider vancomycin. It's important to remember that staphs called it skin syndrome cannot spread to other body parts by rupture of the bullet because the fluid inside the bullet is sterile and the toxin is produced at a remote site and is spread hematogenously. Going over the other choices, choice A is incorrect because only superficial layers of the epidermis are involved. Choice B is incorrect because the rash associated with staph-scalded skin syndrome usually resolves in two weeks without scarring once the superficial layer sheds. And choice C is incorrect because mucous membranes are not involved in this syndrome, unlike Stevens-Johnson's. All right, Nachi, you're up for the last question of episode 52. A 22-year-old man complains of pain, photophobia, and vision loss in his right eye. He has a history of sickle cell anemia. Right eye visual acuity is 20 by 200, and intraocular pressure is 30. You see a grade 2 hyphema in his right eye. Which of the following medications should be immediately administered to this patient? Is it A, IV ketorolac, B, IV mannitol, C, topical acetazolamide, or D, topical timolol? Our patient here has a spontaneous hyphema that's associated with a history of sickle cell disease. These patients usually complain of pain, photophobia, and vision loss. Physical exam will show the hyphema along with decreased visual acuity, elevated intraocular pressure, and an afferent pupillary defect. You need to consult ophthalmology and administer choice D, topical timolol. This is a topical beta blocker that decreases aqueous humor production and lowers intraocular pressure. Make sure to also elevate the head of the bed and give pain medication as needed. Pharmacologic treatment is aimed at lowering the intraocular pressure. So like Nachi said, a topical beta blocker is a good option along with IV mannitol, topical alpha-adrenergic agonists, oral, topical, or IV carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Let's go over the other answer choices and why they're incorrect in this scenario. Choice A, IV ketorolac, that should be avoided along with other NSAIDs and antiplatelet agents due to an increased risk of bleeding. Choice B, IV mannitol, this can be used, but it's not first line and it should be used in conjunction with an ophthalmologist. 
Choice C, acetazolamide. This is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor that lowers the aqueous pH of the anterior chamber and increases red blood cell sickling. This can further increase intraocular pressure in sickle cell patients. So although carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are generally used to lower intraocular pressure, they should be avoided in patients with sickle cell disease like our patient. All right, let's close out this episode with a rapid review. Vision loss is the most concerning clinical feature in patients with temporal arteritis, and jaw claudication is a clinical feature that's most likely associated with a positive temporal artery biopsy. S1 radiculopathy leads to decreased plantar flexion, numbness to the lateral foot, decreased sensation along the posterior lateral calf, and decreased Achilles reflex. Hepatorenal syndrome leads to arteriolar constriction, and the kidneys here would appear normal histologically. The chemical properties of the substance injected is the primary determinant of damage caused by high-pressure injection injury. While air and clean water have a benign course, pain solvents cause the most severe inflammation. Staph scalded skin syndrome presents in children less than 5 years old and often follows a URI. Rash starts on the face, neck, axilla, and groin, and you'll see a positive Nikolsky sign here. Patients with spontaneous hyphemas present with decreased visual acuity, elevated intraocular pressure, and an afferent pupillary defect. Immediate treatment is with agents that lower intraocular pressure, including topical timolol. That wraps up Roshcast episode 52. Creating and producing Roshcast has been a ton of fun, but Mega and I have just become too busy with various other projects. We're unfortunately stopping production for the time being. But don't forget, there are 51 other episodes. Listen and re-listen on your commute to work, at the gym, or even just at a desk during dedicated study time. A huge thanks obviously goes out to all of the folks at Rosh Review who have worked diligently to create high-quality clinical questions, and to Jeff Nussbaum, who co-hosted the first 42 episodes. It sure has been a fun ride. Oh, and as always, be sure to check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. If you ever need to reach us, you can email me at nachig at gmail.com. And for those of you taking the in-training exam on February 27th, good luck. <laughs>